following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Throughout mainstream religion, especially Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they teach about the nature of an immortal soul, and it is assumed that we already possess it. The Gnostics are a bit more nuanced with this problem, primarily because in the words of the Master Jesus, he explained that immortality is not guaranteed. It is earned. In the book of Luke, chapter 21, verse 19, he elucidates this. In your patience possess ye your psyches, your psyches. Also, what people did understand is that there are many souls. Not just one. We'll talk about what these souls are, what is the soul, and more importantly, how do we earn it? There are many misconceptions about what the soul is. But it's very easy to figure out where we are if we examine our reality our day-to-day state. To possess something means to own it. You have it because you use it. You experience it. You apply it. To really own one's soul means to be a master of oneself in every circumstance of life. Not merely through belief, but through conscious astral projections at will, remembering past lives in their totality, knowing how to enter the jinn state, how to travel in the higher worlds, even with the physical body. 
The soul is a dynamic thing, very profound and beautiful. But people mistakenly believe that they own themselves. We can see in a moment of anger that we really do not possess ourselves. We become possessed. Fear, confusion, pain. These qualities represent in us a disconnection from the truth, from our being, from the divine. We'll talk about what to do, how to connect with that intrinsic reality that in most people is undeveloped. Like a seed. The soul as we know from religion, from the different teachings of diverse traditions, is precisely the capacity to know divinity, to experience the truth. However, the soul in us is in potential. It is not fully developed. Also, as we were emphasizing, the full development of the soul is not guaranteed. It is longed for, it is aspired for, but it must be intentionally worked with. Seeds in nature do not become a full tree. It is not the norm. In fact, what happens often is that the seed is lost. Devoured by nature, by the elements, by animals. The same truth applies as a metaphor to our psyche. What in us in our day-to-day moment devours our potential, consumes us, and eradicates the expression of the truth within us, within the being. God. This seed must be nourished. It can grow. It can flourish and give us conscious experiences within the higher worlds. Through dreams, through visions, through the tree of life. But we must know the methods. We must be careful. And we must be patient. With patience, possess ye your souls. Through work, possess yourself. So that you have the nourishment of the heart. We talk a lot about in these teachings about the nature of sexuality. Because it is fundamental. The soul is a seed. But that soul, that seed, is precisely within our sexuality, within the creative energy. It is the power of life. The power to create a God. And where else do we find the power to create through love is through sex. 
It is the power of divinity. But that seed, as we mentioned many times, must be conserved. It must be saved. It must be transformed. Paul of Tarsus mentions very beautiful teachings in Galatians and also Corinthians, where he taught alchemically, symbolically, Kabbalistically, the nature of awakening the soul, of learning to come into possession of that rare pearl of heaven, by which we must sell everything else if we want it. And that is a symbol of giving away our cherished notions of self, our dreams, our passions, even our hopes in certain things. The seed of the soul is referenced in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And that it is the nature of this sexual creative power which is the promise of Abraham. In the Bible, obviously, Abraham is the father of many nations. But he represents symbolically our own divinity, our own being, our God. Who wants to create in us, but we have to cooperate. We have to listen to that voice of intuition in our heart that tells us what to do and how to work practically. The term for seed in this scripture from the original Greek is spermati, singular. You hear the, you hear the term sperm. And spermatis meaning sperms or seeds. Now to Abraham and his spermati were the promises made. He saith not unto spermatis as of many, but as of one. And to thy spermati, which is Christos, Christ. The promise of divinity that we will return as an immortal being is given to Abraham our own God, or Abrahma, Brahma, within Hinduism. And the creative energy, that is where the promise is. That is the seed that can blossom into a full human being. Not merely from an embryo, but really, or a physical child, but spiritually. He said not unto spermatis, seeds, as of many, but as of one. People obviously interpret this verse to reference the many nations that arose through Abraham, such as from the Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But really those seeds or seed, the seed itself is Christos, Christ. Christ can be manifest in us if we remove the imperfections. And as we mentioned in the previous lectures, we remove the animal from us. This is how we gain immortality, which as a practical term, reference 
the ability of the soul to travel in the higher dimensions, to be a citizen of these regions. Not a mere visitor on a visa, but a member of the gods. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. What is corruptible? We know about the ego. Pride, anger, fear, vanity, lust. And what is that which is incorruptible? We talk about what is known as the solar bodies. The vehicles of the consciousness. The solar astral body, the solar mental body, the solar causal body. Vehicles that we can work with practically when we have them. And that way we don't enter what is known as the second death. The infernal regions where the ego must eventually disintegrate. We either can do it willingly or unwillingly. We can eliminate what needs to be eliminated and go up or we can let nature take us. It's natural cycle. We'll talk briefly about what the soul is not because even while talking about some very specific criteria and aspects of the consciousness, we want to emphasize that there are many misconceptions about the soul. You can ask many people about what the soul is and they'll have very different definitions, very different terms. We emphasize that the soul is not physicality. It's not the body. Neither is it our vital energies. So we have Malkut, the physical body meaning the kingdom, and our vitality as Yasod, energy. Most of the time in our day, we spend a lot of emphasis focusing on our body, nourishing our needs, appetite, thirst, craving. And we may have more or less energy to get us through the day. Creative, vital, sexual potential. These in themselves are not our true identity. But if you examine popular culture, you see that people think that they are the body. Ignoring that when we die, we may get a new body itself through transmigration. Likewise, we are not how much energy we have. There are many spiritual circles that focus on energy. Transference, laying of hands, Reiki, energy work. Having a lot of energy or having little energy does not make us more or less spiritual. It just means that we have a lot of chi if we have it. And that's good because having energy allows you to be more powerful in your practices. But it doesn't mean that we're practicing effectively. Because we emphasize, as you see with many posters in this center, that we work with energy, like the runes. We learn to take the energies of sexuality, to harness them, transform them. More power, more sexual drive is good. But it's also more difficult. Because it's easy to be tempted. That's why we work 
with chakras, mantras, sacred sounds, prayers, meditation. Profoundly, all these things, they work together. They take the energy and channel them well. It's also important to emphasize that we are not the personality. That personality is not soul. It's not eternal. Our customs, our language, our ethnicity, our appetites, our ways of being, the way we interact with the world, our language, these are contextual. They're contemporaneous. They belong to a specific time and place. In one lifetime, maybe in ancient Arabia, maybe we were a Muslim, a Sufi. We spoke Arabic or Farsi. But obviously, when the we died at that time, we traveled to a new life. Maybe in the next life we were Buddhist or Jewish or Christian. Those ways of behaviors and be, ways of being are dead. They're not eternal. They don't last. So the personality in itself is really, while a necessary tool, superficial. It's good to develop a personality to know how to interact with the world to be skilled in life, to have a job, to know how to work with people. But the personality is not really eternal, as I said. We need it, we have to work with it, but it is not really who we are. It's a face, persona in Latin or maybe even Greek means mask. It is how we interact with the world. It is not the real full depth of who we are. And then more importantly, behind the mask is our desires, ego, self, Latin in Latin meaning I. It is appetite, anger, fear, craving, lust, identity, a multiplicity of conflicting and contradicting desires, which manifest in any lifetime in order to satisfy themselves. We take the ego with us when we die, but we leave behind the personality, the vital depth, our physical body. The ego is not the soul. Pride, laziness, all these elements are not eternal. They don't have a intrinsic substantial or integrated sense of self because they're in their definition a multiplicity. They do not belong to divinity. The soul is something else. Unfortunately, our consciousness, the soul, most of it is trapped within ego. We say 97% of us is trapped in ego and desires. We have to free it so that by extracting soul from the ego and working with the sexual energy, we create really a superior way of being. We transform our physical body, our vital body. We create a solar astral body, a solar mental body, a solar causal body relating to the higher spheres of this tree of life. We go up, but those parts of us can only be developed when we're working in the perfect matrimony. We have a verse from the Quran which emphasizes really the mistaken attitude of many people in relation to soul. 
You know, obviously the Quran is a very controversial text because it's very severe. But it's very truthful and very Kabbalistic, alchemical, symbolic. This verse from Surah 11 verses 19 to 21 explain the nature of people's mentality in relation to the physical body, the vital body, and personality. And that when people build a tower of Babel, a self, on these things, we miss the point. We misunderstand what our true nature is. Those who turn from the way of God and seek to make it crooked, who disbelieve in the hereafter, such as these cannot thwart aught on earth, and they have no protector apart from God. For them the punishments will be multiplied. They were not able to hear, neither did they see. They are those who have lost their souls, and that which they have used to fabricate has forsaken them. Very profound and powerful. What does it mean to turn from the way of God, to make it crooked? It means that when we really encounter spirituality in its genuine sense, we may get afraid. We see that not just by joining a group, but by experiencing in our heart the reality of ego, self, the soul, we face unnecessary conflict. We face the fear of seeing that we are not in possession of ourselves. And therefore, it becomes painful. And many people, they turn away because it's ugly to see ourselves. Not pleasant. But such as these cannot thwart aught on earth. Despite having beliefs or cherished notions of self, the reality is that our beliefs cannot stop any type of bad situation in life. Things happen to us regardless of what we believe, what we think. We have to face karma. Really, we have no protector from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune except our being. From our God. These are people who are not able to hear, neither do they see. Meaning, we're not awakening in the astral to know and see these truths. We have to perceive these things in reality so that we're guided. People who lose their souls are those who really have no yearning to know themselves. And that which they used to fabricate has forsaken them. Because when we die, our theories and our beliefs will go to the grave with us. But what is really eternal? We have five souls within Gnostic Kabbalah. We divide the tree of life within three trinities. It's the Logoic at the top, the ethical in the middle, and the magical at the bottom, along with the lower sphere Malkut, which is the physical body. So when we talk about the soul, we talk about Hebrew characters or Hebrew letters. We have Yehidah, which is the unity of God. Three forces in one, the Trinity, which is really a unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or to use Hebrew terms, Keter, Chokmah, Binah, crown, wisdom, and intelligence. Or Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, in Hinduism. Or amongst the Nordics, Voltan, Baldur, Thor. Many pantheons teach the same truth. 
We also have Chaya, which is life. It is the life of creation. When divinity creates in us. It is located in Da'at, which is this mystical hidden sphere located beneath the top trinity. And if you take this image of the tree of life and put it on a human being, Da'at is in the throat. Because it is the potential that expresses and manifests through the creative verb, through speech, through mantra. And really, our words are the expression either of light or darkness, the ego. We can create life by working with the sexual power and transforming it through sacred sound. We have Neshama relating to the middle trinity. Hesed, Geberah, Tifereth, or the spirit, mercy in Hebrew, the divine soul, justice in Hebrew, and Tifereth, human willpower, the human soul, the beauty of the consciousness. Neshama is that part of us which is unmixed with impurity. Obviously, our inner divinity, our inner spirit, our inner God is Hesed, the mercy, the merciful. Who unfolds into Geburah, justice, conscience, that sense in us which says this is right and this is wrong. The voice of the silence. Neshama is really that part of us that liberates and frees purifies. Tiferet, our human soul, really does relate to, uh, it's kind of in the middle of things because our willpower has to decide what it wants to do. To follow the inclinations of the divine or follow our self-will. This is why Tiferet can be, have one foot in the door of heaven and one foot in the door of hell. Because we have to choose. Who do we follow? Temptation or redemption? This is why Tiferet is known as Ruach, can relate to Ruach, which is relating to, again, how we control the mind, Netzach, victory in Hebrew, or the emotions, Hod, the splendor of the soul, the emotional state. Ruach, again, is also part of us that knows how to comprehend right from wrong. And is guided by the voice of divine justice. This is not some arbitrary, totalitarian, dictatorial law. Like, follow this commandment or you will suffer. It's really the voice of our heart. Which says, do this, don't do this. But we tend to follow, rather than our own superior understandings, or the pure sentiments of the heart, nefesh. Nefesh is the animal relating to yasad. It is animal desire, passion, ego. We relate it to the ninth sphere because really how we use the sexual energy determines everything. And in in us, nefesh means animal soul. It's not developed. It's raw. It has no perception or conception of divinity. It has to be tamed and developed, transformed into a human. It happens because Ruach, the voice of conscience, right and wrong, the mind and heart in equilibrium, is in control of sex. 
Notice that these forces descend from greater levels of being down into more materialistic and self-centered states of being itself. What's important to realize is that in the path of possessing our souls, knowing all these parts and developing them in their level, that originally the divine forces themselves came from above. That light emerged from the Absolute, whom the Gnostics referred to as Barbello, which in Aramaic, I believe, means fire and light. It's a metaphor of the full divine expression of Christ, known as the absolute abstract space, the fundamental zero base from which everything emerges, the universes, and also the gods. Light emerges from that source, Ein, Ein Sof, Ein Sofor, the nothing, the limitless, and the limitless light in Hebrew, so as to create universes, states of being, dimensions, it's also important to understand that this maps out where we came from, spiritually, but also in terms of dimensionality. But more importantly, it teaches us something psychological too. How do we really possess ourselves? So that light, which is simple, pure, divine, enters the universe, unfolds into different levels of manifestation, and becomes more complex enters materialism, matter and energy. It doubles on itself, kind of in the same way that an embryo emerging from the seed of man and woman begins to split in cells, becoming more complex, begins to form, until finally, after descending down this tree of life into different states of matter, energy, and perception, it becomes a, a being, almost as if we're exiting out of the womb of creation. It's a metaphor. The Gnostics referred to this descent of spirit into matter as the story of Sophia. That Sophia, wisdom, emerged from Barbello and out of ignorance forgot herself. She fell into creation under the auspices of the Demiurge. And the Demiurge means the architect. The architect is Christ. The gods, the Elohim, the masters, who are divine beings beyond good and evil, who manage good and evil. Being beyond good and evil, they manage these laws. But obviously those beings who are trapped, trying to go up, feel like they must confront, really, these archons, in a sense, who govern these different dimensions. They are the angels and beings who govern these respective spheres. And sometimes the Gnostic Gospels refer to the Demiurge architect as something evil, controlling everything. But the truth is that those beings, the Demiurge, is a collection of divine angels who work in accordance with the law. But the law is severe. It is difficult to work with because it is demanding.
This scripture called the three forms of first thought describes the descent of light, the spirit into matter. We call it involution. Meaning how divine force and abstraction becomes material, concrete reality. I am light, Yehida, illuminating all. I am light, happy in my brothers and sisters. I came down to the world of mortals because of the spirit in what descended and came from the innocent Sophia, wisdom in Greek, chokmah in Hebrew. Sophia is the soul that once knew the truth. But when we entered matter, we forgot our true origins. That is the synthesis of the Gnostic myth. More importantly, as we entered matter, we became physical beings through a process of evolution known as anthropogenesis. We made many mistakes. We created our own suffering, so to speak. But we must return. Just as the light of the divine entered into the universe, we must return that light. We must develop the soul. And really to be in possession of one's soul is to reinitiate an ascension. Sophia must go back up these ten spheres and even to the aeons or states of being beyond the tree of life, the 13 aeons, which are, again, these spheres are known as Sephiroth and Kabbalah, levels of being. Not only dimensions, but qualities about really who we are. We find that the five types of soul mentioned in the, amongst the Kabbalists are represented here in the three forms of first thought. I'll read this and I'll break this down for you. He alone came into being as the anointed. Ruach. I anointed him with goodness. Neshama. As the glory of the invisible Holy Spirit. Haya. I established these three alone in glory over the eternal realms. Sephiroth. In living water, nefesh, glory surrounding him who first appeared to the light of the exalted aeons and realms. He persists in light, Yehida, and he stood in a light surrounding him who is the eye of light gloriously shining on me. So, again, the descent of spirit into matter was a material reality in terms of the creation of universes, but also represents how the soul must return to the truth. He alone came into being as the anointed. What does it mean to come into being while we are here physically? It means to awaken the consciousness, to manifest our being, to be alert, mindful, vigilant. We must be anointed. Again, baptism, anointment is a sexual symbol. You work with the seed, the energies, you transmute them, whether through pranayama, Mantras, prayers, runes, sexual alchemy. That is how we come into being while we are here so that we can go up. I anointed him with goodness, Neshama. So the spirit and the divine soul must anoint us with goodness. Really the divine spirit has said is goodness. So another term for goodness is Gedulah in Hebrew. So what does it mean that we must be anointed by goodness? 
Really, when we practice pranayama, transmutation, runes, sexual alchemy, God has to be present. We have to remember the presence of our being. Because you can try to work with energy, but if your spirit is not hovering over the face of the waters in the moment of creation, it will not work. God is the one who performs this work. We are instruments. We do our part. But goodness must be present. When you really feel your divine spirit with you in a state of self-remembrance. This is the glory of the Holy Invisible Spirit, Bina. Because Bina is the Holy Ghost and manifests within sex, between the couple, male, female. And when the couple, man and woman, are working in the sexual work itself and pronouncing sacred mantras, they are creating through the sacred knowledge of Da'at the mysteries of alchemy. That is how we are anointed by goodness, really. That is how we create spiritual life. Divinity, as it says here, established these three alone in glory over the eternal realms. Again, the Sephiroth in living water. So these spheres really come into full expression and perfection in us. But we take nefesh, the waters of sex, and make it human. Sometimes Yasad is related to nefesh, living water. It is the sperm. What else is water in us that gives life? We create superior states within us through nefesh, extracting light. Glory surrounding him who first appeared to light of the exalted aeons and realms. He persists in light. Yehida. Yehida means unity. It is the absolute integration of the soul in itself. It is Christ. Where there's no deviance or obstruction in us. And he stood in a light surrounding him who is the eye of light gloriously shining on me. What is that eye of light? Some people think of the third eye, the chakra ajna, or the church of Philadelphia, as the eye of light, which is where you see clairvoyantly and within dreams, within the astral state. But really the eye of light is sahasrara, the crown chakra, the church of Laodicea, the church of the golden cathedral in the astral plane. So those chakras and temples and churches symbolize chakras themselves. When you're Chakra Sahasrara, the uh, thousand-petaled lotus, is fully open as an eye. You gain omniscience. You can project in the astral plane through your crown chakra and go all the way to the Ain Soth, which is really the star of being, the primordial synthesis and root of the divine. That is Yehida. It is the Glorian. That light shines on us when we're raising up our own tree of life the fire of sex, so that we create and create anew. We have here an image from Dante's Divine Comedy, where he approaches the Empyrean. This is precisely the Ain Sof War, where you can have this vision where in the astral plane you say in the name of Christ, by the power of Christ, for the majesty of Christ, 
and invoke a master, such as Samael and Vior. If you look in the atmosphere, it'll open, and you'll see this. Millions of angels rotating within that light of Barbello, ascending up, but they will come down to you. If we're sincere, if we need help. This is the Demiurge, the Logos, Yehida. Many beings, one light. Diversity is unity. The Logos means really the word. This is symbolized in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, where the chorus of angels recite the sacred melody and harmony of Christ and their march beyond. This is Yehida, the voice of uh, the silence. The three forms of first thought explain what Yehida is. They refer to it in a very enigmatic way, but I'll break this down. In one sense, they talk about what is known as the three permanences, because really, this is eternal. This will exist before, during, and after any universe. In fact, it, it is reality before the manifestation of any created thing. But all these angels work together to create any universe. They are the architects of the divine. They follow the law. Now the voice that came from my thought exists as three permanences. The father, the mother, the son. In Da'at, Chaya. The voice is perceptible speech containing a word rich in every glory. It has three masculinities, three powers, and three names. They are in the manner of the triad of three shapes, which are quadrangles, secretly in the silence of the ineffable one. The father, the mother, and the son. In Da'at. This relates to how in us, man and woman create the sun. Osiris, o Osiris Isis create Oros, which is the spirit within the sexual act of Da'at Chaya. So we're speaking not only just, not speaking macrocosmically, we're speaking about the individual, microcosmically. So while this is real and pertains to really the creation of any universe, how the divine masculine and the divine feminine unfold to create the sun, which is really anything in the universe. In us, husband and wife, like we see Dante with his Beatrice, his divine soul, work together to perfect the spirit in themselves. They do so through Da'at, with an alchemy. The voice is perceptible speech containing a word rich in every glory. So there's some credence that some people refer to the Logos as not only just the word, but the expression of divinity through speech. But we have to examine our words themselves. Do our words edify people? Are they rich in glory? Do they express the being? Three masculinities, three powers, three names. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes this can be confusing because the Gnostics were very obscure writers. 
Sometimes we think of father, son, and mother, and then they refer to the Trinity as three masculinities. So how can we reconcile that? It's very dense. We refer to these top three spheres as three masculinities because the masculine creative force initiates, creates, manifests, expresses, commands. In the absolute, or when that light emerges from the absolute, it becomes three forces to initiate and sustain the creation of the cosmos. But within Binah, there is another trinity. Binah unfolds as father-mother, Isis, Osiris. And through Duat, through their union, this lower seven Sephiroth come into being. So in Binah, you have that duality, father-mother, Aima and Abba Elohim in Hebrew. Masculine, feminine. So don't confuse those two trinities. Really, the trinity of the three masculinities on the top sphere, or the top trinity itself, is known as the world of Atzilut in Kabbalah. Atzilut is the world of archetypes. The potential to create. And when Bina becomes Shiva Shakti, male, female, Adam, Eve, father, mother, god and goddess. They create through the world of Bria. Bria and Kabbalah is the world in which we have creation. But when we have creation, we then have to have formation. And this is a process as again hidden within the human embryo. First, you have the archetypes, which is sperm and ovum. When they unite, you have the world of creation, Bria. But then the embryo must form. That is Yetzirah, which is the lower spheres. Hesed, Geburah, Tiferet, Netzach, Hod, Yesod. So finally, you have birth. The child is born, Malkut. Four worlds. The world of matter and action, Malkut. The kingdom is Asiya, the world of matter and action. It's also important to remember, too, that, again, this process pertains to the creation of the soul, the possession of the soul. You take the seed of man and woman, conserving and controlling and transforming them, we give birth to a different form of creation in us, spiritually speaking, the solar bodies that we discussed. This is reflected within the remaining section of this verse. They are in the manner of a triad of three shapes, which are quadrangles, secretly in the silence of the ineffable one. Again, you have quadrangles, which are four si uh, shapes with four sides. You have three of them. These relate to the tree of life. Really, we, you have ten spheres, but above that we have three more. You have the ten Sephiroth, the ten Aeons, within Gnostic cosmology and Kabbalah. But then you also have the Ein Sof 4 or the Ein Sof in the Ein, which is 13 total. Really, three quadrangles, 12 spheres, from Malkut to the Ein Sof, all in the silence of the Ineffable One, which is the Ein, the origin, the source. That is the unity of the Logos. But also, again, as we've been exploring this topic, the tree of life 
not only maps external reality, but really the process by which we create our spirit. How we work practically in ourselves to possess our soul. Or better said, souls. We talk a lot about the sexual power of divinity within this top trinity. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then Da'at, going a little bit further with this analysis. This is from the three forms of first thought, where we see how the power of divinity is the power of sex, the power to create life. He gave aeons, sephiroth in Hebrew, for the father of aeons, Yehida. I, the I, the thought of the father, first thought, protonoia, barbello, the solar absolute, the perfect glory and the immeasurable, invisible, hidden one. I am a heye, Yehida, the image of the invisible Holy Spirit, Chaya. Through me all took shape. I am the mother as well as the light whom she appointed virgin. She who is called Meorothia, lights in Hebrew, the intangible womb, the unrestrained and immeasurable voice. Very beautiful and deep. Again, Yehida can also emphasize really the first sphere that emerges from the unknown. Keter and Kabbalah, the crown. Protonoia, the first thought. I obviously, scholars translate these terms in accordance with their, their knowledge. But Keter is not thought. It is consciousness. The first state of being that emerges from the cosmic space. The first thought, the first emergence from Barbello, the perfect glory, the immeasurable, invisible, hidden one. Sometimes Keter, known as the father in Christianity, is known as Eheye, Asher Eheye in Hebrew. I am that I am, as spoken to Moses in the burning bush. Again, the burning bush is a symbol of the tree of life. And this image of the invisible Holy Spirit, Chaya, which creates. I am the mother as well as the light whom she appointed virgin. And we've been really unpacking a lot about the nature of alchemy, especially. How the divine mother, known as Binah in Hebrew, the intelligence of God, the power to create life, is the one who originates light in us. Whom she appointed virgin. Again, this term among the Gnostics referring to sexuality is not exclusively referring to people who've not had physical sex. First, the purity of the initiates. Men and women who work in the path of initiation must become virgin. Not physically, in the sense that, really, you, if one has had sexual experience, that is permanent. It's happened. Virgin refers to the state of the purity of the consciousness, in which the couple eliminates lust and develops love, conquers the sexual instinct, nefesh, and makes it human. From that, one becomes mea, like meorothia, which is the Hebrew term for lights. You find that term meorot in the book of Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth and, is set, and set stars of the firmament in heaven, meorot. Very deep symbol. Those are not referring to the creation of the stars necessarily, but 
spiritual truth? How do we create the stars of heaven in us? Because um, as we mentioned in other lectures in our courses, if you're in the astral plane in your dreams and you invoke divinity looking to the sky, if the atmosphere is clear and you see the stars, you have ascension. Higher qualities of being. Light. Understanding. Insight. Intuition. This is born from the intangible womb. And really, what is the womb in us, alchemically speaking? It's the spinal column. We have to raise the kundalini up the spine. The womb really is in, first, the roots of the tree of knowledge, which is sex, the sexual organs. But the fire that gives birth to the spirit is the spine. Obviously, if a couple creates a child in the normal way, you have a physical child. But to be born of spirit is to raise the spirit up the spine. That is the womb from which light goes up your tree of life, your spine, through the power of the immeasurable voice, your inner Christ, to create light in your mind. You must be, we must be illuminated by that force. That is how we create Barbello in us. Which I think it actually in Aramaic means far in light, but also there is um, different translations too. But where is that fire and light in us? When the couple transforms the fire of sex into love and light, you raise it up the spine, you create the lights of heaven in you. That is the sexual power of divinity. That is how we create the soul. Is how we are born again. But in this process, we have to encounter our psyche. We have to understand that there are negative states of being that obstruct the potential development of the soul in us. We have what's known as a four states of consciousness. And the three forms of first thought, which is the Gnostic scripture we are examining, talks about this. The first thought form of uh, consciousness is ikasia in Greek. It means imagination, images from ikon or image. The second is pistis, which means belief, conviction. And then we have dianoia, which is awakening the consciousness. Lastly, we have noose, which is translated usually as mind. Better said, it is a superior state of being in which we are fully conscious of God. Ikasia and Pistis are negative. Dianoia and noose are sacred. Superior, inferior. Ikasia is a state of consciousness in which we have no awareness. We may see images, imagery, life. We may be experiencing situations and conflicts with people, but we have no awareness of where our impulses are coming from or what's driving us. This is the state of consciousness of people who enter mobs. This is the state of consciousness of people who riot, who are swept away by passion, and later they may reflect on how 
horribly they acted. They were perceiving, but they were asleep. They did things they did not understand. It's ironic. How can you imagine, like ikonon, images, you see, perceive things, but you have no awareness? It's a psychological state. You can ask people who've done certain things, maybe they committed a murder, and they regret it, obviously, because they feel like this wasn't me. How could I have done this? Ikasya. Complete, unconscious awareness of oneself. It is truly negative. Even sees Ikasya reflected in really watching many television shows. You see images on the screen, but we often lose ourselves. I'm sure we've all had that experience sitting in front of a movie for three hours where you feel and think and perceive through the images of the screen and then you don't even have awareness of your body. You don't even remember who you are. You're asleep. You're immersed in the imagery. Ikase can also refer to a state of sleep in which when you physically go to bed at night, eight hours pass and you don't see or remember anything. You don't even dream. There's that reality too. But pistis is different. Pistis is conviction, belief, without evidence. Ways of thinking. We think something is true, but we don't know. We haven't verified it. We may believe in astral projection, jinn experiences, mystical states of experience of knowing God. We may believe in God. We may theorize, but we don't know. Belief without conviction or conviction without evidence. These are all the theories and really beliefs that people have about not only just metaphysics, but life itself. But pistis is the state of being in which we may be thinking or feeling, rationalizing, conceptualizing. It is a form of dreaming. It is a dream. It is a mirage. It is an illusion. Now, we have many beliefs about who we are, what we are, where we came from, why we are here, what we are doing. But how much of that is really based on what we perceive directly in us? That is dianoia. It is the revision of beliefs. It is self-observation. It is awakening. It's a state in which you are seeing yourself in a new way. You don't have to theorize about it. You just know it. You may think and believe that I'm not an angry person. But if you begin to observe yourself in certain situations, you see the swamp, the mud come up from the bottom, which you couldn't see if you weren't looking for it, if you weren't trying to catch it. Dianoia comes from dia, which means thoroughly, from side to side, to go beyond in Greek. And noia, which means the mind. It means to see your mind in a new way. To actively look at yourself. Really, to possess our souls is to look and to gain data about our hidden defects so that we can transcend them. And if we're eliminating those faults, 
We can develop noose. This is the consciousness of God. To know divinity directly. This is very sacred. Plato described these four states of consciousness in his allegory of the cave, whereby leaving aside the prison of the mind, escaping out into the countryside to see first the light of the stars for the first time, and then later the sun. That is a metaphor of this awakening. The three forms of first thought explain this. I gave him some of the living water, which strips him of chaos in uttermost darkness, in the whole abyss, which is corporeal and psychical thought. All these I put on, and I stripped him of inferior thought and clothed him in shining light, knowledge of the thought of fatherhood. You have symbols of baptism here. The living water, again, is nefesh, the waters of sexuality, in which, as we're conserving that power and working with that force in us, we're cleaning the mind. Really, that energy strips you of chaos. If our life is filled with great affliction and pain, sorrow, confusion, agony, fights, resentment, we can clean all of that when you work with the water of life. You clean your mind. And then, first off, those emotions, they settle, they become less frequent, they still. But when we fully eliminate those defects in themselves, we leave them in the abyss. We become baptized. Really, that uttermost darkness is our mind, the abyss of suffering, which is both corporeal and psychical thought. This is very interesting. Sometimes our sufferings are based on the body. These are easy to solve. In some cases, obviously people who have illnesses that contend with have a great ordeal and impediment to face. But more importantly, the origin of all sickness is psychical. Psyche, from our mind. If we are afflicted with anger and pride, we will become sick. Lust, Anger, these things make us ill, not only just mentally, but physiologically. But, really, all these I put on, meaning, what do we abandon and what do we put on through this work, through the living water? You put away, really, the qualities of being relating to what we call the lunar bodies, Vehicles of nature we receive that we travel within the dream state, which are the embodiment of our defects. Anger, pride, but also mind and heart. Lunar mind, lunar thought, lunar emotion. Kamarupa or Manasarupa in theosophy. But we have to put on, really, the solar bodies, the wedding garments of the consciousness. This verse from the three forms of first thought relate to the zodiac and the nature of the solar bodies that we've been kind of hinting at. What's interesting is that the zodiac itself has many influences on our psyche. 
but not in the ways that people commonly conceptualize. So when we talk about possessing the full gamut of our psychic potential, we explore the zodiac because they relate to our full development. Now, when we study transmigration, which is how the soul enters new bodies, or colloquially reincarnation, we enter many zodiacal houses. We get influences rather from Libra, from Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn. In our life, in our experiences, we gain eight existences under each zodiacal sign, with a total of, uh, I'm sorry, nine times on each zodiacal sign, so for a total of 108. This is to help round out the soul, give us necessary experiences that help us become more developed. Because these zodiacal influences do have a potential in us and an influence. But the truth is that in most cases, we take these divine energies and we subvert them. So when we talk about, say, Libra or Virgo or Leo and its qualities, the truth is that we tend to take those influences in the psyche and channel it through ego. We experience the negative polarization of divine force. So if one is a Libra, really who has a sense of justice between right and wrong, good and bad, wants things to be fair, they can often get very offended by contradiction in other people. But the inferior type of Libra person, instead of being balanced, is disbalanced. So they really reflect the opposite of what they should be. But a superior type of Libra has their scales in harmony, their mind and heart. They also know how to judge fairly in situations because they're taking the forces of Libra within the psyche, the soul, not the ego. And they're eliminating their own ego so that they really embody the virtues of Libra. The same with the other forms of the Zodiac. We can also talk about the solar bodies in relation to the Zodiac because if you want to really reflect the highest elements of your zodiacal sign, we work with the solar bodies. Again, the solar bodies, the wedding garment of the soul, are vehicles like in this tree of life, these different spheres, which allow us to inhabit the higher dimensions. We talk about the solar astral, solar mental, solar causal body. These are reflected in this verse from the three forms of first thought in relation to the elements and the tree of life. Now, think of the solar bodies like a light bulb. It's a conduit. When those vehicles are present in us, when we create them through a marriage, after many years, they unite you with the being. You gain more concentration, ability, focus, Awakening, abilities to astral travel, jinn states, meditation. You experience higher dimensions with ease. You know how to navigate the higher worlds with familiarity. And also, divinity expresses more within one who has the soul of vehicles and is eliminating the ego because the ego is an obstruction. The self has to be denied and, and destroyed. So that light shines more and can express, really, the higher virtues of the Zodiac. Because the Zodiac not only relates to our personality types, but our being. Actually, the being is way beyond the Zodiac, but divinity operates through the Zodiac to influence us in certain ways. Really meant for good, but how we use those forces is up to us. 
This is reflected in these verses. I delivered him to those who give earthly robes, Yaman, Elasso, Emani, and they covered him with a robe from the robes of the light. I delivered him to the baptizers, and they baptized him. Micaeus, Micard, Menesius, Messinus, and they immersed him in the spring of the water of life. I delivered him to those who enthrone through air, Bariel, Nuthan, Sebenai, and they enthroned him from the throne of glory. I delivered him to those who glorify with fire, Ariom, Elien, Fariel, and they glorified him with the glory of the fatherhood. So again, you see the four elements represented here, earth, air, fire, and water. And the zodiac relates to the four elements. You have three signs with fire, air, earth, and water. It's interesting, really, to be robed with the robes of light is the solar vehicles. To possess our soul, to be baptized with fire, the kundalini. And by enthroning the spirit within our mind, the fire in our heart, the waters of sex, and the earth of the body, we gain self-mastery. And this also helps us to understand the zodiac and its place within our particular spiritual work. We also talk about when creating the soul and developing it, or the different aspects of the soul, we refer to the Divine Mother. The Divine Feminine has been given many names amongst all mythologies, religions, and traditions. She is Athena among the Greeks. Minerva among the Romans, Isis, Maya, Kundalini. She is the power or part of our divinity who helps create the soul. She eliminates defects and perfects us, perfects the consciousness. But she has five aspects that we have to understand, which are reflected within the five seals of the light of the mother referenced in this scripture. And he received the five seals from the light of the mother, first thought, protonoia. And it was granted to him to partake of the mystery, mysterion of knowledge, gnosis, and became light in light. We talk about five aspects because really the five-pointed star that we see in the back of this room is the pentagram, the true human being. A true human being, spiritual being, is aided by the Divine Mother. She helps us in five ways. She is the Divine Mother's space. Really, she is the cosmic womb of divine abstraction from which light emerges. She is the absolute. She is the womb of the uncreated light, Barbello. She is a state of being which is truly sacred, serene, divine. When we experience the void, the emptiness, of uncreated divine potential, we feel that plenitude in our heart and we wish to go enter it. But we also have the individual divine mother who is our own inner Bina relating to this sphere and the tree of life. She is individual to us and manifests within our dreams. So if we have an experience of our mother in the astral plane, it is because of our inner individual Bina. She's taking the form of our terrestrial parent to teach us. If you have dreams of your father, see your divine father, usually. 
So the Divine Mother individually can help us symbolizing, representing things in dreams, teachings that we need to know so that we can competently navigate the difficulties of life. So those dreams will teach you what you need to do in your physical life in relation to your spiritual work. Probably more importantly, we have the Divine Mother Death. Really. Kali. The pulverizer of the ego. If you want to create the soul, you have to die to the ego. Anger, pride, lust, vanity, fear, rage, rancor, resentment. She has to kill those defects so that the light can be extracted like in the symbols or images of Hinduism of Kali drinking the blood of demons that she slays really is taking the power and light of divinity trapped in the ego and gives it to us. She is fierce, more terrifying than any demon. And she is a part of us. We work with her especially in the perfect matrimony. When the couple is in the sexual act together, in a profound state of prayer and love, in connection, one invokes Kali, or better said, Divine Mother Death. Because in the power of the sexual act, which that energy can create life, you can direct it to pulverize any ego, disintegrate it. This is Tantra. Through this, you really possess your soul. You master yourself. What else is a greater power than sex? It can create any human being. It can also destroy a human being. Really, it can destroy the ego, or if it's abused, can totally shatter a person. Very obvious, especially if people have traumas relating to sex. But sex can be liberated, divine, sacred. We also have the elemental magi relating to yasad, relating to nature. So sometimes we refer to nefesh as something negative, yasad, the sexual energy with it, which is raw. But when it is refined and developed, mastered and controlled, is the expression of the elemental magi. So if you work with plant magic, such as commanding the souls of plants, using medicine and treatments, doing any rituals, you really work with the elemental magi, the divine feminine, the divine mother in Yasan. She helps us to work with the plants of nature. You can work with the souls of the aloe, the maguey, which has certain powers that can really help us advance in our spiritual work. And then Mother Nature really is Malkut, our physical body. Our body is a kingdom, a nature full of many elements that she resides in. She is really the queen of our body. Sometimes Malkut, the physical body, is referred to as feminine, whether of the male or female sex, because this physical body receives all the forces from above, from the tree of life down here, synthesizing into our body, but also our energies. So we work with her to advance. Especially with initiation. So the beginning of mastery, really, the beginning of mastering ourselves is by working in the perfect matrimony, working with initiation. The couple must learn to raise the fire of Kundalini up five bodies. The physical body, the vital body, the astral body, the mental body, the causal body. These are vehicles that we inhabit when we dream. 
Or when we raise the fire of Kundalini up the spine in one level, the surplus enters a new dimension. We go up more and more, raising the vital forces of the Kundalini within Yasad, then Malkut, then Netzach, then Tifereth. This is described in a book called The Perfect Matrimony by Samal and Vior. These are five seals. These are the seals mentioned in the book of Revelation that only Christ can open in us. So we represent here the pentagram because this pentagram is the perfected human being. It can also refer to the five points, again, five initiations to become a true human being. When that fire of the kundalini has been raised up the spine of the causal body, when we create through the fifth initiation of major mysteries a causal vehicle, we become a master. So, to be clarify, five initiations of major mysteries, we call them physical body, vital body, astral body, mental body, causal body. First initiation, second initiation, up to the fifth. When we reach the fifth, we can incarnate our soul. Before that, we do not have soul. We have a seed. When the human soul, Tifereth, is dressed in its solar armor, then we can become a master, a beginner. Because there is not only just mastery, there's perfection in mastery, which is much more distinct. Here's what the three forms of first thought says. About this, I hid in them, all beings, until I revealed myself among my members, which are mine. And I taught them about the ineffable ordinances and about the brothers and sisters. But they are inexpressible to every sovereignty and every ruling power, except to the children of light, the Sethians. Decreed by the Father, these are the glories that are higher than every glory, that is, the five seals, complete by virtue of intellect, better said, nous, the superior mind. I revealed myself among my members, which can also refer to congregants. But more importantly, what are the members of the body? We have the organs. We have really members relating to sex. And taught the human body about the ineffable ordinances. Really, how to master ourselves. Master the body. Master sexuality. And about the brothers and sisters, which really are people in any movement who are working to perform this practice. But they are inexpressible because as much as we may talk and lecture about these things, you have to experience it. You have to know it for yourself. And that's where the value really emerges. Again, five initiations, five lower bodies. In this process, we strip away lunar bodies and create solar bodies. Obviously, our physical body was created through fornication, through the common sexual act, through lust. And so, therefore, it is diseased and, you know, weak, gets sick often, does not have much strength, is very vulnerable to the elements. But by raising the fire of Kundalini up the body of Malkut, we Christify the physical body. We make it like Christ, the power or light of divinity. The physical body becomes something weak to something strong. You strip away what is animal. And likewise, 
the vital body, which is in most of us very raw and undefined animal. We make it human. We strip away what is impure. We also eventually, as we're raising the fire of the Kundalini up the lunar body of the astral vehicle, that lunar body is kind of like an embryo. The fire emerges from the spine of that vehicle and eventually like a chrysalis forms the solar body of the astral vehicle or the inner Christos, the intimate Christ. Likewise with the mental body, which is also lunar in us. Again, lunar bodies refer to vehicles who were given to us by nature. We didn't create them. They were given to us so that we can inhabit the world of dreams. But those are inferior levels of nature. The solar bodies connect us with higher regions. And then finally, to breath, the causal body, which must be created so that we can incarnate our real will. One who possesses the five seals with these names has stripped off the garments of ignorance and put on shining light. And nothing will appear to the one who belongs to the powers of the rulers. In them, darkness will dissolve and ignorance die. And thought of the scattered creature will have a single appearance and dark chaos will dissolve until I reveal myself to my brothers and sisters and gather all my brothers and sisters in my eternal kingdom. I proclaim the ineffable five seals to them so that I might live in them and they in me. Really, this is how we transcend the power of the rulers. You've read about the archons in Gnostic myth, who are really those beings who have already perfected themselves, but who bar the way if we do not qualify for initiation. So they're very strict. But through this path, we pay our debts, we ascend, ignorance dies. We dissolve the ego so that we can be entering the kingdom of the truth. This is the essence of chastity, which is the basis of initiation. This verse from the three forms of first thought, I think is pretty much the most compelling than any we've covered. Because really, it talks about the sexual nature of really the seed. And that Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior, is really the solar astral body. I wore Jesus. I carried him from the cursed wood and set him in his father's house. And those who guard their houses didn't recognize me. My seed and I are unrestrained. My seed is mine. I shall place it in holy light in intangible silence. Amen. To wear Jesus is to wear the solar bodies, to possess one's soul. We carry him from the cursed wood, meaning the wood of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is sex. We've made it corrupt, rotten, and sick. But we really, from that transformed act become something sacred. We set him in his father's house. But those who guard their houses didn't recognize me. People who guard their, really, their beliefs, their religion, their traditions, who may reject sex as the way to liberation. They reject and don't recognize the light, that development. So that seed and I are unrestrained. My seed is mine, meaning I possess myself and therefore shall place that energy up through the silence of the heart within perfection. If you wish to know more about many of these Kabbalistic and alchemical symbols, you can study a book called Alchemy and Kabbalah in the Tarot by Samal and Vior. Very deep.
So at this point, I invite you to ask questions. Yes. Maybe this is a misconception, but I was under the impression that in, at least early in our work, we're kind of working with the three souls of Kabbalah, Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama, and not so much with Haya and Yehida. Is that accurate? And if so, then at what point do we start working with the higher two? Sure. We work with the first three souls, Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, within the first five initiations of major mysteries, especially. But the higher souls of Chaya and Yehida really relate to the second mountain. Very profound and much later in the path. But obviously, as we're perfecting ourselves, we're still refining Nefesh, the animal. But with the mastery or the beginnings of mastery on the first mountain, we begin to have some level of stability and control. So there's mastery at that degree. But to really become Chaya, a resurrected master, is to complete the second mountain. And to fully perfect Yehida, the unity of the light, is the third mountain. So they're parsed out. Sure. Are the first three souls the uh, physical, vital, and emotional? Nefesh relates to Yesod. It can also relate to our physical body too, because Malkut and Yesod really are two aspects of the same thing. Our yet vital body interpenetrates the physical body. Our physical body would not have life if it weren't for the vital depth. Now, that Nefesh, when it is perfected, becomes Nefesh Chaya, a living soul. Obviously much later in the path. We do so by, control, to control Nefesh, we do so by working with Netzach and Hod, which is Ruach. And really, um, our mind and heart, our sense of right and wrong, has to be guided by the, the, really the divine soul, Geburah. Justice, Neshama. So, Ruach is that ability in us that can decide what to do. It's a sense of our will. We feel in our heart in a moment that we have to do a certain thing. We may try to debate in our mind, conceptualize. Maybe we have fear, but we know in our heart it's the right thing. And if we put aside our fear, we let our mind and heart align with that inner judgment. We really have intuition, intuitive action, neshama. We follow a superior law. That's neshama. Neshama really is the consciousness of God. Now, in the beginning, we may have a general sense that, you know, we may not see divinity clearly, but we can sense in our heart that a certain action is right and others are wrong. And we have to follow that. Really, that sense is a, in us tends to be very clouded because we've obscured ourselves. If we follow our own mind and heart through ego, really, we're, that's nefesh. We're being manipulated. But when we clear our mind, clear our heart, Ruach can in turn be receptive to the higher spheres. We can know the will of God in the moment. It's not something we rationalize. In fact, the intellect is an obstacle. The mind that deliberates. 
This is why Samal Enviar said, really one of the worst things is the depressing process of options. Right? Should I do this? Should I do that? What do I do in this situation? What should I say to this person? It's confusion. It's lack of clarity. But when you're awake, suddenly the insight hits you. When you open your mind, and better said, open your heart, you listen to Neshama, who is your divine soul saying, follow me. And really, you can try this experiment. Whatever situations you have in your life that are the most difficult, take a moment to wait, be aware. Better said, we can even meditate, especially because that's going to gain, give us the greatest clarity. But sometimes if you're really putting it, if you're in the moment, putting aside your fears and your assumptions and you just listen attentively, perhaps it's at your job, you may have difficulties with clients. I know this has been my experience where I may feel a sense of like how to interact with a person who is very difficult, provokes a lot of anger or pride and fear. But if you're observing yourself and watching the hidden intrinsic motives of your being, you can sense what to do. And that's intuitive action. You don't have any options. You just do it. And if you follow that more and more, it gets stronger. And suddenly, you see that Neshama is really influencing your life and produces good fruit. Better relationships with coworkers, people, friends, spouse, family. When you let that guide your actions, when you let Neshama intuitively in that pressure in your heart inspire you. Samuel says, we march on the path of success. I believe even Dion Fortune said, God is pressure. Right? It's a sense that you feel constricting you when you are do when you're misbehaving and expanding you when you're doing right. You can only know it by tasting it and going deep into it and be willing to strip away your fear because it's a scary thing to the mind. Nefesh doesn't know God and fights. But if you put aside Nefesh, you tame the animal. You, you pull the reins in. But then eventually, as you're working with Neshama, in the beginning, it's a voice. It's a silent inclination. But through the path of mastery, like Dante and Beatrice, you become married. You see her in the astral plane internally. Until finally through the work, especially on the second mountain, she incarnates in you. Long process, but those are the really the three main ones we talk about. But the Gnostics really, as we were saying, go deeper. The Nefesh is not evil, right? And Nefesh is just some, is a force that needs to be tamed and purified and has a lot of power for our spiritual work, right? Can we consider that Nefesh has kind of fallen in the beginning of the work? We have to redeem it. Can Ruach also be fallen? Can Neshama also be fallen? Or are some of those souls never fallen? Like, say, Tiferet can fall, but Hesed and Deborah cannot. Right. Is it the same here? Nefesh is undeveloped. It's animal in the sense like, really, there are, if you look at, it, at any animal, like a cat or a dog or a lion, they're driven by instinct. And for them, it's 
undeveloped. Like, they're innocent. They don't know right from wrong. Nefesh in us is different. Nefesh is a quality of soul in which we're driven by ego. But also, Nefesh has the potential to become pure. So it's a general term, but we're also talking about not only just the ego, but we're talking about the soul that's trapped in it. Because the potential of the seed is what can become human. Right, because Nefesh and ego are not the same. When Nefesh is inside, when Nefesh is inside of ego, then we can be driven by animal qualities. Yeah. When we, when we extract it, then Nefesh can be the power of the sexual force that can elevate us, right? Right. And Nefesh can become Nefesh Chaya, a living soul. But then, um, Ruach, had really the thinking emotional soul, the ability of will to decide, that can either follow redemption or enter temptation. That can fall. It can fall. Can fall. Neshama. Neshama in the spirit, Geburan has said, never fall. You're sacred. Although there are some myths that imply that the divine lady, Geburah, like you see in the opera Parsifal, Wagner's great masterpiece, Kundri represents Geburah. I mean, she's the divine feminine that, you know, when serving the knights is sacred and holy. But when that energy is channeled really uh, in us, when our divine feminine is channeled in ego, is the temptress, meaning our own lust. But yeah. And then the higher ones, obviously, Chaya and Yehida never fall. They are eternal. One thing I have a hard time understanding is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It seems, by the name of it, to be two fruits, but a tree only has one. An apple tree is an apple, orange tree is an orange. So how can we have a tree that has two fruits instead of just one? So is good and evil one fruit, is it the same thing? It's how you eat the fruit. It's knowledge. There are two forms of knowledge. You get a knowledge of, really, uh, if you look at the Hebrew terms itself, um, Otz Hadat, the tree of knowledge. Tob Veira, as you see in the poster. Tob means purity. Ra means impurity. It's translated usually as good and evil. But really, Tob, goodness, is the purity of sex. And Ra is the impure sexual act. We gain knowledge, different forms of knowledge from both those ways. One of them is knowledge of purity and peace. The other is pain. Same fruit. The sexual energy is one thing. But how do we use it? That's the question. Do we use it with purity? Do we inhale the aroma of that fruit and let it edify our spirit? Do we let the spirit eat from that energy? Or do we eat with passion? That's the fundamental dilemma of religion. To be or not to be. Temptation and redemption. Good and evil. Better said, purity and impurity. Because when people think of good and evil, they think of moral terms, philosophies, which what's good for me could be bad for you, or what, what's good for one culture is bad for another. It's like, this is not subjective theory. It's objective reality. When you use the energy in certain ways, you get certain results. 
use it in the wrong way, we suffer. It's the duality. From that energy is how an angel is born or a demon is born. Right? Kundalini above, or if that energy descends through lust, is the tale of demons. Obviously, if we're approaching these studies, it's because we want to change. We feel some longing to know what the fruit of the tree of knowledge can offer. But the other way to know it is to do it. But it takes practice. Sure. Um, is that what uh, Samuel Dior was talking about, uh, about the Hasna Musen? That's what you were just describing. Yeah. A Hasna Mus is a, or Hanas Musen, you could say, is a split being. This is a very unique situation. In some in some cases, in terms of uh, the degree, there are four degrees. Uh, Hasnamus means a being with a double polarity. There are certain beings who most people we have the spirit, the divine being in us, but then we have ego, so we're split. We're like Dostoevsky's character Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. Raskolnikov in Russian means split, and he deals with the moral conundrum of his heart after he commits a murder. And he realized that his inner goodness is trying to fight his inner demon for what he did. Very powerful book. Now, we are split because we created desire, lost ego, but we have the voice of heaven inside too. Now, that's one degree. That's common to everybody. We all are like this. Another degree of a Hasna Moose is a being who worked in alchemy before. May have raised the fire of sexuality, the kundalini, up the physical, vital, and astral bodies. They created a solar astral body in the past. But then they fell. That's one level. So they have a polarity in heaven and a polarity in hell. One foot in the door of both worlds. There are beings, even beyond that, who created solar astral, solar mental, solar causal bodies. They were masters. Maybe even a bodhisattva. Meaning they incarnated Christ, they did the work, or to a degree, but they fell. So they have mastery in their spirit, but then they have ego below. Another form of a split personality. The worst are those beings who completed the three mountains. They were once angels. They had not only the solar bodies, but they had eliminated all their ego. They paid their karma. Then they decided to fall. This is the fourth type. And these four type of Hasna Musin are beings that we find in the Black Lodge who are running the show, better said, on Earth. Very evil beings. Very uh, tenebrous and dense. If you encounter them in the astral plane, we use the conjuration of the seven to reject them because they have so much power that they took from heaven and they channeled it through their own ego, recreated the ego. They are archdemons, so... We usually don't have the power to reject those kinds of intense figures on our own, which is why we invoke the archangels of heaven to reject. In the name of Mikael, may Jehovah command thee and draw thee hence Havayot. In the name of Gabriel, may Adonai command thee and draw thee hence Bael. And likewise onward, you're invoking those higher angels. Because there are beings, they were once at the heights. And they really have a split personality. There are some people in the Gnostic movement who were once like that. 
they were once angels, then they fell. They're fallen bodhisattvas. And so if they return to the path and they are given the option to return, they face a big dilemma. Change or don't change. And their karma will be worse if they don't change because they have more responsibility. And Samael says these types of beings are worse than demons because a demon never knew heaven. But a fallen angel had both heaven and he- is, is a member of both heaven and hell. And therefore, nobody trusts them because they're dangerous. In one moment, they can be a solar personality. In the next, their black magician comes out. Now, it's ironic in the Gnostic movement that there are people who maybe have fantasies that what if I was a fallen bodhisattva? What if I was a fallen angel? As if it's romantic and nostalgic. It's the wrong attitude. People who discover that in themselves will really weep tears of blood. It is a terrible situation for those people. And they have to work very hard to overcome their, really their nefesh, which they reanimated. So it's good to examine in yourself, what level of Hasna Musan am I? I mean, you may find that in your meditations and astral travels that you may have certain knowledge of astral travel that you don't know where it came from, from past lives. Especially if experiences come easily. But really, one has to be very discerning and patient. You know, anyone who's been in, in really in any Gnostic school has had some affiliation with Gnosis in the past life. They might have passed through at some point. Some of them who stick around have really been in it. You know, but really the the ones who uh, are as dedicated will find out what the case is. So, yeah, it's a deep topic. I mean, there are a lot of fallen bodhisattvas in the Gnostic movement. Many. And many of them are trying to rise again. But it's very difficult for them. It's a contradiction, right? It's like one is a, has a mastery in the being, but some of them have mastery in the ego. Very dangerous. You know, it's like you invoke in the astral plane a certain master. You're trying to invoke... Like if you read the esoteric treaties of theurgy, Samal performed an experiment where he wanted to invoke the being Andra Malek. He's a fallen angel. And his black personality, his evil personality came out. You can read about it if you want to know more about the duality of heaven and hell and certain beings. It's really a terrible split and uh, terrible karma to pay. But if the being wants to help that individual change, they will. And they will have to work very hard. Sure. I've been uh, clean and sober for drugs and alcohol for over 28 years. And I remember when I was 19, over 30 years ago, my Uncle Peter came up to me one day and he goes, why are you using drugs? And I told him, my mind says yes, but my body says no. And that's how I understood it back then. And I guess that's the split that you're talking about. can be. It's like 
you know in your heart this is wrong. Yeah. But part of you fights to get what it wants. Mm -hmm. It's the nature of any addiction. Yeah. Now with a really a fallen master, it's like they know the path is true because they lived it. They may have certain beautiful experiences in heaven. And yet, no matter how hard they try, Kundri takes them down. You know, that's the beauty of Parsifal, the opera by Wagner. You see this woman who's the fallen Magdalene trying to serve the Knights of the Holy Grail. Kundri. Kundrigia. Kunda. Kanda. Kundalini. The Kanda is the where the Kundalini resides. And she's very noble. She's probably the most noble of all the knights because she always travels far and wide to find ambrosia balm to heal the fallen knight Amfortas. And she receives the denigration and scorn of the other knights or the Gnostics. Why are you, why are you with us? They condemn her because she's very fallen. She was very evil. You know, but obviously in the opera, she has a great sorrow because when the night comes, when Klingzor, the black magician, is active, he pulls her. He summons her. Because there's a part of her that wants to change, but there's that part of her that doesn't. That's the split personality. Very painful. But you see that Kundri does change. And she is redeemed. Sophia rises. We have to be willing to do it. All right. Any final thoughts? Sure. Yeah, one that's been like hanging on from like a previous lecture, and I heard you talk about Abraham um, in this one and how that represents the Father um, on the Tree of Life. And I'm, I was trying to understand like why um, Melchizedek um, asked for his tithe of the Father. So I'm just trying to connect that with like today's lecture. Sure. Again, Melchizedek, Malek Tzadik, righteous king. He is the logos of the earth, governing Malkut, the physical plane, or physical world. He demands tithe of any initiate entering his order, meaning we pay the White Lodge for initiation. The price is our life. What actions will we perform to become a member of the White Lodge, the cosmic hierarchies, the divine. That tithe is, uh, people traditionally interpret as money, like we do with any school. But really, we pay tithe when we sacrifice Nefesh. We take the animal instead of Isaac. And like Abraham, we sacrifice the animal. Not our firstborn. As you remember from Genesis. It's a symbol. But obviously we have to be willing even to give up our child. Not in a literal sense. But our attachments. What we really hold dear to our heart. As this is who I am. This is my sense of a father. A child. A son. A brother. A sister. We have to be willing to put it to the knife. Meaning <coughs> kill the ego that is attached so that we can really live. And then Abraham, before he strikes his son, an angel stops him says, you've passed the test because you're willing to renounce even the very beloved that you have, your last drop of blood for humanity and for divinity. 
And then after, look in the bushes as a goat. Nefesh. Kill the animal. It's not a literal physical sacrifice. It's a, it's a metaphor. Kill the animal in you. And therefore, you give, you enter mastery. Level by level, degree by degree. Ruach, constantly praying to nef- Neshama to control Nefesh. Transforming Nefesh into human. And eventually, later, if we have the really the, the merit, second mountain, and God willing, third mountain. Yeah, very high. Okay, we'll conclude. Next week, we'll have a lecture on The Voice of the Silence by Blavatsky. I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.